Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, host of Seekers and Scholars. In this episode, we have a fascinating seeker story to explore with some outstanding scholars. It is that of Bicknell Young, a man born to a prominent Mormon family in Utah Territory in 1856, who traveled the world, pursued artistic and spiritual vocations, eventually becoming a prominent figure in the Christian Science Church. With me to discuss his story and what it tells us about the intersection of new religious faiths in the United States and in the world at large in the late 19th and into the 20th century are Christine Hagland and Mike Hamilton. Welcome, Christine and Mike. Thanks. Nice to be here. Thanks, Jonathan. Christine is the author of Eugene England, a Mormon liberal, published in 2021 by University of Illinois Press as part of its series, Introductions to Mormon Thought. And she is the former editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. And she is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Christine, it's great to have you with us. Thanks. I'm so glad to be with you. Mike is executive manager of the Mary Bakerty Library and the author of an article on Bicknell Young, which is published on the Mary Bakerty Library website as part of its From the Collections series. In addition to his deep interest and involvement in the study of Christian science and Christian science history, Mike has a longstanding academic interest in Mormon studies and the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Welcome, Mike. It's always great to have you back in studio for a Seekers and Scholars conversation. Glad to do it, Jonathan. So, Mike, who was Bicknell Young, and how is his story a Christian science story and a Mormon story? I think that for many of our listeners, Bicknell Young's Christian science story is probably the more familiar one. But that story wouldn't have happened without his Mormon story. Mm-hmm. And both of those things, I think, are important in understanding him as a man, as a Christian scientist, and as someone who has a continuing influence on people interested in Christian science because of his career as a prolific lecturer and one whose writings are still valued by many people interested in Christian science. Young was born in Salt Lake City in Utah Territory. And one thing many people ask the library about is whether Bicknell Young was related to Brigham Young, Mm -hmm. the leader of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the 19th century. The answer is yes. He is Brigham Young's nephew. In fact, his first name is Brigham. Brigham Bicknell Young. He was named for his uncle. His dad was Brigham Young's older brother, Joseph Young. And his mother was Jane Adeline Bicknell Young. And because of his relationship to his famous uncle and his own family, his growing up in Salt Lake City was one that exposed him to, I think, many of the important figures in 19th century Mormonism. And his own family life was very reflective of his time and place. His mother, Jane Adeline Bicknell Young, was the first wife of his dad, Joseph Young, who had five wives. 
mm-hmm. 21 children. Bicknell was the youngest of his mother's 10 children. Mm-hmm. And so he grew up in a milieu that at first may sound quite foreign to us, but for those who have studied and learned about the story of polygamy in Utah Territory, there are many aspects of his youth and early manhood that would seem very familiar. His love for his parents, his uh, relationships with his sisters, which we think were very important, and also with some of his half-siblings by his father's other wives. He's very much encouraged to pursue his interest in music and to explore and develop his gifts as a singer, eventually a baritone singer. Mm. He finds his way first with family support and then as a performer in Salt Lake City and then makes a really big leap when he's 23 and makes his way to London with a letter of recommendation and is admitted to the Royal College of Music. Mike, that is so interesting to hear about Bicknell Young taking off to London to pursue his dream, to pursue his vision. But it occurs to me that that experience of traveling a great distance, engaging in a great quest, is so much a part of his heritage with the Latter-day Saints and their great trek to the Salt Lake to establish a home, a permanent home, which would become Salt Lake City. So, Christine, it would be great if you could just tell us a little bit about the Latter-day Saint journey to the Salt Lake and its significance. Yeah, well, let me go back just a little bit and um, give a quick sketch of how the Mormons got to Utah. Okay. Um, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was founded in 1830 in upstate New York in what uh, was often called the burned-over district because the fires of religious revival had covered it so thoroughly. And the founder of the church, Joseph Smith, was caught up in that along with his family, and he was thinking about becoming a Methodist, as several members of his family had, and went to pray about it in the woods and had a vision in which he saw God the Father and Jesus Christ. And rather than confirming his decision to become a Methodist as he expected, he took from this vision uh, the idea that he should not join any of these churches. Instead, he was called to found a religion. Mm -hmm. And so he did, and it was a tumultuous first couple of decades. The Latter-day Saints tried to establish communities in Ohio and then in Missouri and then in Illinois. And in each place, they were um, met with suspicion and hostility, which they sometimes returned. (laughs) Joseph Smith was uh, murdered while he was in jail awaiting trial. So the Latter-day Saints moved around and eventually went to Utah, uh, which was then part of Mexican territory. And the first group of wagons and and settlers arrived in 1847 in July. You know, one thing worth mentioning, maybe Joseph Young and Jane Young, Bicknell Young's parents, their journey really was a journey through early Mormon history, joining the church in upstate New York, I believe, both of them. They were present in all the places that you've Mm -hmm. mentioned. Jane Young particularly was witness to some of the early tragedies of Mormonism. She was at Hans Mill for that conflict and uh, massacre, and then at Nauvoo and every place along the way. So 
they really walked the walk that yeah. you're describing through many decades and came to the Salt Lake Valley to, uh, I think, finally have a place to call home on a permanent basis. So, Christine, Mike has mentioned Bicknell's interest in music and his talent. How did that fit into the Mormon community and Mormon culture at that time? Was that unique or was that reflective of something that would have been really valued? It was highly valued from the very beginning. Music was part of worship services, and because Latter-day Saints were drawn from various mostly Protestant traditions, there were lots of musical traditions um, mm -hmm. that had to work themselves out. So early on, there were questions about whether they would sing in unison or sing in parts, whether there could be choirs who rehearsed or whether the singing should be more spontaneous, and about whether there should be instruments as part of the service. And Ultimately, all of these questions were settled in a kind of maximalist direction. The, right. the, it was, yes, sing in parts, yes, practice, yes, have instruments, and yeah. um, the more the better. Brigham Young seems to have had some suspicions about violins and fiddling. He said that the fiddle reminded him of old Davy Jones, mm -hmm. and, and it was associated with sort of saloons. And mm -hmm. um, But wind instruments were fine, um, <laughs> and so they established brass bands early on and woodwind groups played in worship services. Brigham Young, as he sends out settlers to start smaller satellite colonies outside of Salt Lake, he always makes sure that there are a few musicians mm -hmm. to go because music is understood to be not just part of worship, but part of building a healthy community. Mm. So it's, it's a key part. They brought instruments on the trek west. The band organized itself even as they were traveling west and performed in cities or towns that they passed through in exchange for food and other supplies. So so music is, is part of this all along. When they get to Utah, they arrive at the end of July, July 24th, and by August, there's a small choir performing in the first big church service that they had after they finished constructing what they called the Bowery. So it's integral and is regarded as something that one brings to the community as a sort of offering and even maybe a religious duty in a way, or at least a duty to the community to exercise what talents one has. Mm -hmm. um, it has to be said that sometimes their aspirations outstripped their <laughs> abilities. There's a wonderful journal entry from a Welsh immigrant to mm -hmm. Salt Lake. He wrote in his diary on his first Christmas in Salt Lake City that he woke up and he, he thought he heard some singing, but then upon a listening attentively, he realized it was just pigs squealing, and he felt very disappointed. <laughs> this is uh, so interesting. Mm -hmm. As Bicknell is getting into his teens and starting to sing and sing in public, people note that his father is known for his wonderful singing voice. So mm. Joseph Young has a reputation, I don't think as a soloist, but as somebody who's known for his singing voice, and his wonderful knowledge of an ability to sing Methodist hymns. He brings that, and you can see the transmission possibly from dad to son, mm -hmm. and um, the way it appears at least that Bicknell is, is encouraged. One of his teachers has studied at the Royal College of Music in London, and although I haven't been able to make a direct link. It certainly seems quite possible that that's the source of the encouragement that finally sees Bicknell at 23 stepping out into the world that he aspires to belong to in London and going to the Royal College of Music. 
we have record that his dad is worried about him uh, going so far from home. He's a young, unmarried man, and I think he's worried about his morals, uh, frankly. And he also may have sensed something that certainly makes itself real, at least by the time he gets there, and that Bicknell distances himself from the religion of his youth. He makes a kind of break with his past. It doesn't mean that he breaks with his family, though. Uh, There are signs of affection and mutual regard all through the decades. But he's kind of moving in in a different direction at that point and trying to establish himself as a musician. Uh, It certainly must have made a huge difference to him to find his life companion there, Eliza Mazzucato, who's an instructor at the school he's attending. She's older than he is. They marry. And within the first few years of their marriage, they have two boys and then later on return to Utah and have another son. And it appears that they're establishing themselves as performers. They open a music school and drawing on this real, what I guess we say today, community support for the arts. Yeah, I think there's a way for the Latter-day Saints, you know, they've they've been driven out of the United States, but they still are aspiring to create a genteel community. And music is one way they can do this. The arts generally are a way they can do this. And then I think there's also a religious component to that drive. There's Latter-day Saint scripture that says the glory of God is intelligence. And the idea that the more education and intelligence you can gain in this life, the better off you will be in the next, that Mm -hmm. that progress continues and and is something that has cosmic significance, that sort of earthly attainment matters. There are Christian religions that are a little skeptical about art and and the Mm -hmm. way that it arouses emotions, and Latter-day Saints regard that as sort of an index to godliness, that these exalted human emotions are a good thing to be celebrated and sought after. I think that may be one thing that Bicknell took with him from his background, even though he seems to have distanced himself from the religion, he's definitely carrying some of those values with him. And their sojourn in Salt Lake City, there doesn't seem to have been anything that pushed them away from being there, except perhaps the desire to advance their careers in a larger place. And so they're in Chicago by 1890 and established themselves as performers, as teachers, It's at that stage that they come into contact with Christian science. We don't have any idea how much he really knew about that, except that in parallel with his own interest in Christian science, his sisters back home in Salt Lake City, at least some of them, were also beginning to look into this, what to them, you know, was a new religion. What was a new religion? Bicknell had been ill for a period and contacts a Christian science practitioner or healer. He's benefited. He's made well. According to his son, he's an agnostic at the time, but something about uh, the spiritual appeals to him. And again, I think we can't overlook his background there and the high value placed on spiritual things in his upbringing. Bicknell and Eliza grateful for his healing, then embrace Christian science as a religious teaching. They become members of the Christian Science Church in 1895. Thus begins a kind of interesting 
move into the channels that Christian science provides them. As performers, Bicknell becomes the soloist at First Church of Christ Scientist Chicago. He then, with Eliza, moves to organize another congregation on the city's north side, where he serves not as a soloist, but again, using the wonderful instrument of his voice as the first reader of that branch church. And from there, their commitment seems to deepen. By 1900, he's given up his professional activities with music and has become a Christian science practitioner. It's an interesting move on his part, and it's reflected back home in Salt Lake where his sisters also become Christian scientists, and several of them, notably Henrietta Young and Fanny Young, become Christian science practitioners in the 1890s, very early for Christian science, and are involved in the further organization of Christian science activity in Utah and help to found uh, the first organized congregation in that city. Yeah, so with that in mind, what would it have been like in Salt Lake City to be a Christian scientist at that point? There were people from many faiths in Salt Lake City. The founder of the church, Joseph Smith, had a very sort of ecumenical perspective on what Mormonism should be. He said that one Uh of the grand fundamental principles of Mormonism is friendship. And if he could take a Methodist or a Baptist and make a friend of him, then had he not accomplished a good end. Right. Um, So there was, at least aspirationally, this hope to be friendly. And I think there was also sort of, you know, well, if you're not fighting against us, um, then, <laughs> then probably your friend. The other thing I would say is that even though nowadays we think of Latter-day Saints as quite conservative, that wasn't true in the early days, right? This, mm-hmm. this is a self-selected group of people who are willing to throw everything over for a not yet thoroughly defined spiritual system um, right. that, that they are attracted to. And so it doesn't seem shocking to me that Christian science would be appealing or that people who had been Latter-day Saints would continue to seek and seek truth and be willing to give up a lot when they thought they had found it. That Mm. was very much a Mormon characteristic. I think one thing that maybe people wouldn't consider or wouldn't have thought of is what you mentioned. That's the diversity of early Salt Lake City, which only manages to be a kind of Mormon city in toto for just a few years. (laughs) Soon there are people both coming through and seeing a good thing in a number of ways and settling there and erecting their own houses of worship. One thing that's kind of clear and interesting from Young's later life is his love for the West. He just never loses that. That is clearly in his soul. And in his late years, because he lives a long life, he spends a month out West every summer when he can with a group of friends, people he invites along, and they live outdoors and uh, camp and ride. And from his youth, uh, he's a pretty accomplished horseman, I'd say. His center of activity after he becomes a Christian scientist is Chicago. His time out west is a time, I think, each year to move out of what was a very demanding role, perhaps the most public and important role he plays, 
is as a Christian science lecturer, someone who travels from place to place speaking on Christian science. And we have some really interesting reflections and accounts of people who hear him speak. And what is it he brings? Again, I think we could probably take some of it back to his youth, his voice. He's able to use that voice. And as a singer, a soloist, he's able to move that voice into any corner of a very large hall. And he speaks in some very large halls as well as some very humble places. And he follows that work as a Christian science lecturer for over 25 years. It's the way he makes his most well-known contribution. And those lectures are not just oral and auditory experiences. Many times they're printed in newspapers. And so Young starts to develop this kind of in-print track record that people access then and still find very valuable and interesting today. Mike, in your article, though, you did discuss a bit about the privation that Young experienced when he was in London, and it seemed to make a mark. How did the question of poverty affect him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think maybe it's important to understand that in his youth, growing up in his family, well, in some ways they enjoyed a position of privilege. The early pioneers of the Salt Lake Valley and on into the 70s and 80s, these were not people of tremendous affluence. Would you say, Christine? No, I mean, and the crops failed multiple times in those first years. So at least in his early childhood, there were probably periods of real want. He probably would have experienced the least of anybody, you know, in the in the city, but it was hard. And you would not choose the Salt Lake Valley for its agricultural right. Um, riches, right? <laughs> <laughs> if, if you were thinking hard about whether you could survive. I mean, they did manage eventually to build irrigation systems. Yes. And then when the Transcontinental Railroad comes through just north of Salt Lake City, that, of course, changes everything. But there is also within Mormonism this deep, deep-seated sense of trauma and persecution. The stories of the persecutions are told and retold, and the privations of the poorest saints who came in wagon carts. There's a beautiful story about when some very poor European immigrants got stuck in the mountains in, in Wyoming, and Brigham Young receives word about them as he's preaching a sermon, and he says, go get them. This is our religion. Prayers are no good when milk and potatoes are what is wanted. And so there is this sense that physical privation and spiritual privation are related and need to be solved together. That's so interesting because Young's experience, even after he's gone his own way, his great struggle, not surprising, as a young man in London, is to make ends meet. And he talks to some close friends about it years later and describes his straightened circumstances in London, but then also the way that he struggles later uh, as, as a husband and a father providing for the family, his wife working right alongside him. But even when they're in Chicago, that shadow of want is over them. And it's really interesting because when he describes his physical healing, 
the thing that seems to come right alongside it, maybe actually is involved in what the whole problem was about, is that somehow this fear of poverty drops off of him. I don't think there's a marked change in their financial circumstances right away or soon. And he, and then he, several years later, he enters the work of a Christian science practitioner, which is, you know, a self-employed dependent on fees of patients, you know, not a, not a get rich quick kind of thing. But he says one of the things he's most grateful for is that a Christian science has freed him from the fear of poverty. So, Christine, thinking of Bicknell Young's story as a seeker story, how might we think of it as relating to his background in Mormon culture? Well, if nothing else, the Orr story of Mormonism is about a young boy, 14 years old, going into the woods mm-hmm. to pray, to ask God a question directly because he can't get an answer from any of the ministers around him that is satisfying. And so he goes directly to God. And I can't think of a more powerful sense of authorization to to seek and to go to the source of, you know, whatever knowledge it is you want, to right. just go directly and ask. One thing I kind of puzzled over a little bit, and I don't have an answer, but just a thought with Bicknell Young coming out of his experience with family. One thing that is quite different in some ways, at least on the surface, that he comes to affiliate himself with a religious movement led by a woman. He's a lecturer during Mary Baker Eddy's lifetime, in contact with her, receives letters. They don't have a close personal connection, but he is very much her follower there. I've come to kind of think that in some ways, Young is very well equipped uh, to make that sort of shift in that it's apparent in many ways that he holds his own mother in very high regard. Uh, That's a very important relationship. And in fact, she is a student in the first class he teaches on Christian science, probably in the front row. And so I realized, no, the authority of women in certain ways in the tradition he'd come from was greater than I think maybe society appreciated and also what the larger society practiced. Yeah, so women are very powerful in in early Utah in many ways, and they're spiritually powerful. They do all the healing, both the sort of practical work, particularly midwifery, which obviously (laughs) is very important in a polygamous community, but all of the healing, and they participate in spiritual rituals of healing as well. So I think it would be entirely natural for him to be okay with a woman as a spiritual leader. Yeah, so interesting. Christine and Mike, thank you so much for this wonderful exploration into the life of Bicknell Young, which in a way provided a journey into comparative American religious history and American religious studies. Christine, it's been wonderful to have you as a guest on Seekers and Scholars. Wonderful conversation. Thank you both. Mike? We always are interested in having you as part of a Seekers and Scholars episode, so uh, this is probably not the last time, we hope. Thanks a lot, Jonathan, and thank you sincerely, Christine. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Seekers and Scholars, where we had the pleasure of talking with Mike Hamilton of the Mary Baker Eddy Library and Christine Hagland, a distinguished scholar of Mormon studies, in exploring the extraordinary life experience of Bicknell Young and its connections to the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and in his robust 
and profound career as a writer, teacher, and lecturer for the Christian Science Church. If you haven't already, have a look at Mike Hamilton's article on Young, which you can find on the library's website in the From the Collection series. It's titled, A Rich Portrait of Bicknell Young. And you can connect to it directly through the link in the descriptor for this episode. Also forthcoming is another article related to Bicknell Young, this time about his wife, Eliza Mazzucato Young, an accomplished composer, musician, and music educator who, like her husband, became a practitioner of Christian science. Please join us for upcoming episodes, including a discussion of the impact of Charlotte Sikowski as a reporter for the Christian Science Monitor on the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe during the Cold War. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2022.